0: Okay, well, that's settled. Uh, Noon is a better time to host these events than 4 p.m. Nevertheless, I'd like to welcome everyone and thank you for coming to the first of two semi-final sessions of the 2011 Student Speaker Challenge. The 2011 Student Speaker Challenge is presented in partnership by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs, the Lethbridge Public Interest Research Group, the University of Lethbridge, and the University of Lethbridge Students' Union. My name is Keith McLaughlin. I'm the Vice President Academic of the Students' Union and I will be your moderator for today. Our presenters today, of course, are addressing the question what is global justice and how can it be achieved? Both presenters will have 15 minutes to present their respective responses to the global justice question. An additional 15 minutes will be allotted to each presenter following their presentation to answer questions from our panel of judges and from our audience. Following the conclusion of both presentations and question periods, our judges will hand in their scorecards at which point the winner of today's session will be announced. The winner will receive $300 courtesy of the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs and will move on to the final round of the 2011 Student Speaker Challenge which occurs on Tuesday, March 15th at 7 p.m. in Andy's place. At every Student Speaker Challenge session, our panel of judges consists of one student, one faculty member at the University of Lethbridge, and one community member. Our student judge for today is James Falconer. He is a recent graduate of the University of Lethbridge and is currently employed as a research assistant in the Department of Sociology. Our faculty judge today is Maureen Hawkins. She is a professor here of English, or excuse me, in the English department. And finally, our community judge today is Mark Sandilands. He is a former psychology instructor here, and now professor emeritus, of course, in the psychology psychology department. We are expecting a very insightful and very engaging presentations today From the gentlemen to my right, Mr. Thomas Fox and Mr. Taylor Webb. Mr. Fox is an environmental science major who is currently working on finishing his honors thesis. He is the president of both the campus Chess Club and Amnesty Club. He is also a member of the board of directors for the Lethbridge Public Interest Research Group and the Lethbridge chapter of Amnesty International. Mr. Webb is a third year history major who has vowed once again to present his thesis in the form of spoken word. His long term plans include attending graduate school in the United States. Uh, our presenters today agreed that no point toss is necessary. Mr. Thomas Fox will speak first. So, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Mr. Thomas Fox.
1: Thank you. Justice, to many, is thought of as a form of equality. However, justness and fairness are not necessarily synonyms. In Iran, it is not fair that female and not male adulterers are stoned to death, yet it is within a unique religious, cultural, and political context that this form of justice is enacted. But perhaps then, this is not true justice. While we all differ to a certain degree on what it is that we perceive to be right and wrong, and on the extent to which various violations of law or justice should be tolerated, I think that it is in all of our best interests to come up with a single, general definition of justice. So I will define justice at the scale of two people, you and I. There is a mutual justice in our relationship when we value our own well-being, when we show complete respect for the well-being of each other, and when we are subject to the same external conditions. For example, we are born into similar conditions or have equal access to resources. Global justice, therefore, is the manifestation of these conditions at the global scale, not only between all individuals, but between institutions such as states, religions, and corporations. As you can expect, using the definition I have provided, I will eventually conclude that no, global justice is not possible. Now that the surprise is ruined, I will explain in detail why this is the case. The first premise for the possibility of the existence of global justice is that we are all subject to the same external conditions and random environmental variability. Many of us are born in a time and place when humanity is more prosperous than ever before. Modern technology has allowed for unprecedented production of food, medicine, hygiene products, and manufactured goods. However, many of us are born into far more unjust circumstances. Some are born into poverty, disease, hunger, and so on. These random external injustices occur not only at birth, but also throughout the course of our lifetime. Some get struck by lightning. Some hit black ice while driving and end up paralyzed. The second premise is that all human beings and institutions show complete respect for the well-being of each other. In The Lord of the Rings, Aragorn stands at the gates of Mordor and yells, Let the lord of the black land come forth, let justice be done upon him. Injustices are inherent within and across all societies. While the orcs of Mordor probably had fairly poor working conditions and were likely not unionized, I would hazard to say that the infantry of Gondor did not receive universal health care, at least to the standards of the king. One of the main problems with trying to achieve global justice is the following. What may be considered just to one person, may be an injustice to another. This relates to another problem, impartiality. The perfectly just entity will treat all others with the same fairness. Unfortunately, we are all biased in some way. The second major problem is that many injustices are committed by mistake. At a small scale, I may say something that unintentionally hurts your feelings. At a much larger scale, Consider the mistake of the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. Furthermore, the occurrence of injustice tends to instigate a positive feedback effect. Take for example the issue of poverty. Say we both have $10. I steal $2 from you. I now have more assets than you and more opportunity to succeed and to broaden the gap between us, or at a larger scale, and in a less metaphorical sense, between rich and poor. The children of rich parents are better educated. They get better jobs, much in the same way that first world nations have the infrastructure required to maintain levels of wealth relative to the countries that they exploit. If you flip that coin, rates of crime among the poor, whether theft, drunk driving, murder, or virtually anything else, are far higher than those of less needy demographics. The last of my proposed premises for the global justice is that we value our own well-being. Of course, how can we respect others if we cannot even treat ourselves justly? But haven't we all had too much to drink one night and spent the next day at home completely debilitated? Haven't we all criticized ourselves too harshly when looking in the mirror? Thus, none of the premises can be achieved, and using this definition, absolute global justice is not possible. However, This, of course, does not mean that we shouldn't try. If we define justice in more practical terms, as opposed to theoretical, our aim can be to get as close as possible to the ideal. Just because we cannot achieve a perfectly just system, does not mean that we should not strive to do so. I will now take the liberty of becoming a little bit more creative in answering the following question. What do we do? How do we get as close as possible to complete global justice? The answer is stability. Stability is in turn a function of three components. Human rights, proper education, which extends beyond the curriculum, and most importantly, heterogeneity of systems. Human rights is the obvious one. Abuses of human rights are not only injustices in and of themselves, but they impede long-term inherent stability by creating a a dichotomy between the oppressor and the oppressed, as well as undermining notions of fairness in the moral system, which in turn lead the oppressed to lose faith in that system. The United Nations Declaration of Human Rights is a step in the right direction. It includes 30 articles, such as, All people are born equal. All have right to life, liberty, and security of person. None shall be tortured, enslaved, or discriminated against. And so on. The second factor, contributing to global stability, which is striving to to provide proper education, is also of great fundamental importance. By education, I mean all forms of knowledge acquisition, education for the young and for the old, in the social sphere as well as behind school walls. First, we need systems of education that teach critical thinking skills. I cannot stress how important this is. Children are born with this intrinsic, fundamental, beautiful ability to question everything. Yet, in many cases, parents and institutions are both responsible for weeding out this valuable quality. Mom, why can't I go to a friend's house? Because I said so. End of story. Secondly, we need systems of education that teach students to be confident in their ability to speak their minds and to stand up to authority when they think it is necessary to do so. From the first grade of primary school, To my last year of university, teachers and professors have always been symbols of absolute knowledge. They are not questioned, challenged, or held accountable by their students, as they represent this pinnacle of perfection. While these figures are obviously not perfect, they do not like to admit when they are wrong, and students are therefore disinclined to challenge them. Thirdly, we need education systems that teach the importance of empirical truth. We need to teach evolution, not as a theory, This does not mean that we need to disregard religious and cultural beliefs. Ideally, these are separate elements of society that do not overlap. Most importantly, we must teach ecology. Many people laugh when I say this. Yet, it is, in my opinion, the most fundamental discipline and the most conducive to valuable learning. Ecology teaches interconnectedness. It teaches holism. It must be mandatory at all levels of education. When I say ecology, I'm not talking about predator-prey cycles or population dynamics. I'm talking about emphasizing that everything, people, economies, the environment, are interconnected and interdependent. This is the primary source of the much-needed paradigm shift that will change the way that we perceive our natural surroundings and change the way that we treat the environment and each other. If we take a step away from the deconstruction of the curriculum, it becomes evident that our efforts to provide adequate education must transcend the formal institutional approach. The children of our country, the future, are forgetting or maybe never learning what it is to be creative, what it is to play. Suburban sprawl coupled with an unfounded fear of bruises, scrapes and the neighborhood child molester has resulted in a culture of big lawn, no kids. We know that despite an increase in standard of living, the average happiness of North Americans is declining. We know that this can be attributed to a decrease in social interaction and the substitution of personal contact with Facebook, Xbox, texting, chat rooms, and so on. The benefits of increased social interaction extend beyond happiness as they instill a sense of cohesion, involvement, accountability, social responsibility all within the community. Finally, the best way to achieve a stable system is by encouraging the heterogeneity of its components. By heterogeneity, I mean diversity. I mean creating pillars of support for ourselves so that if one gives way, everything else doesn't come crashing to the ground. Consider the trees that line the boulevards of some of the older residential areas on the south side. They're huge and beautiful yet homogenous in species and age. As they were all planted at the same time, they will all die within a few years of each other. If a species-specific pathogen comes through the area, they will all be susceptible and all wiped out. Now consider what humans are doing to the planet. We are wiping out rainforests and replacing it with monoculture. We are making our entire economy dependent upon a single energy source, a finite energy source. It is said that we are in the midst of a mass extinction, and that we are losing species at rates unparalleled since the Cretaceous period. We are also altering the climate, which will soon result in the loss of a number of cryospheric landforms, including permafrost, sea ice, snow extent, and so on. Humans are sucking diversity out of the planet, and in doing so, destabilizing it. Now consider the economy. Economies are most stable when they can take a hit. This means not monopolizing on a single resource or commodity, but specializing in a variety of income sources. Look at Pittsburgh, the steel city. Look at Dubai. What's going to happen when we drink all their oil? Furthermore, we're also well on our way towards cultural homogeneity. I know the anthropologists may disagree, but let's face it. Languages are disappearing. Traditional ways of life are disappearing. T.E.K., or traditional ecological knowledge, is disappearing. When these things are gone, you cannot get them back. The world, in so many ways, is homogenizing, and humans are the agents of change. We are trying to simplify and standardize, though we are, in the process, rendering ourselves vulnerable to conflict and natural disaster.
0: Before I conclude, I would like to briefly
1: comment on the ways that we identify injustices and the way that we choose to act upon them. I would like to make particular reference to climate change and environmental degradation. If I were to punch you in the face, the injustice would be evident, as the action and the consequence would be immediately linked in time and space. However, many of our actions are far removed from the consequences. Mr. Bob Dylan sang, For threatening my child, unborn and unnamed, you ain't worth the blood that runs in your veins. Should we be held accountable for those actions that may adversely affect others down the road? I think so. We expect the same from our parents and our grandparents. But are we not climbing a ladder and breaking all the rungs beneath us? To what extent is driving your car better or worse? been punching someone in the face. Should we measure the severity of injustices in terms of their cumulative effects? If so, we may, through climate change, be blindly contributing to one of the greatest social and environmental injustices of our time. (coughs) To wrap up, global justice can best be achieved by maximizing the stability of global systems, with stable socio-economic, political, and environmental systems, we treat ourselves better, we treat each other better, and we are better able to adapt to environmental variability. This stability can be achieved through preserving human rights, providing proper education, and embracing system heterogeneity. While I have spoken extensively about what needs to be done, I have not had time to address the how. While the details are complex, and would merit a speech of their own, the primary agent of change is, and always will be, you, the individual. I would therefore like to make an appeal to you. An appeal to the faith that you must have in your ability to enact positive change in the world. Your thoughts count, and your actions matter. The world is not as big as it seems. For example, While I am frustrated by climate change deniers, I am far more troubled by those who have become lazy and jaded in their fatalism. Each and every one of us is equally responsible for making the changes that are required to bring about global justice. Margaret Mead put it best, Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Thank you.
0: We will now have 15 minutes for uh, questions from the audience and our panel of judges. I'd actually like to give the panel of judges the first crowd. If anyone has a question, share
2: Your example about creating social community you know, and, and the lack of Facebook, et, et cetera, et cetera, seems to quality to the process of North American and European society. How would you create this community uh, across classes, across cultures? Um, how am I going to have a kind relationship with, um, I don't
1: know, an impoverse of the now? So how are we supposed to make those social connections, not within our countries and cities, but between them? And with people that you may never get the chance to meet? In between classes. Yeah, between classes. Yeah, that, that is extremely important, and and I think that's, that's the root problem, because That is one of the reasons that um, people allow themselves to engage in behaviors that they wouldn't normally consider to be just. So, um, uh, for example, um, if you buy something from from Nike that was made in a sweatshop, it's very easy to say, oh, I don't agree with sweatshops, and I would never enslave a child to work 15 hours a day for whatever wage that they can barely feed themselves but it's okay to buy from Nike if I'm not aware of that, right? And so to make that connection between the consumer or just the citizen from one class or or one country to another um, is, I agree, very important to do. And I think the best way to go about doing that is to to instill a sense of humanity between people and, and that, that can really only be done through education. So if we encourage a society where we are allowed to be ignorant of the consequences of our consumer behavior or of our social interactions, then, then, we, then that will continue to proliferate and exist. But if we encourage a society where we are conscious of you know, the decisions that we make when we go to the store and buy organic food or buy something that was made from a fair trade organization, then, then that will transcend into being more socially conscious at a global scale or between classes as
2: well. You uh, concluded by exhorting people individually to take the steps to uh, think locally and act globally, I guess is one of the slowest. Uh, Some some observations...
1: I think that's a very good point. Uh, Legislation has the potential of playing a very huge role and providing a lot of benefit. Um, Coming back to your example of smoking in public places, um, I think that that only became legislation because there are a group of individuals who have experienced the negative effects of smoking in public places and brought that to the province and said, hey, look, you know, look at cancer rates, look at, people who work in bars as opposed to people who work in non-smoking restaurants, there is a clear difference. You're killing people. We have to enact legislation which in in turn created a change. So, um, I'm not saying that either thing is mutually exclusive, that it should be, you know, the grassroots individual versus the legislation, and that only one could work without the other. Um, Legislation could be a very, very important tool. That can can enact and enact a lot of good change, and and I think that fundamentally that is what we should strive towards is is legislation on fossil fuel emissions, and uh, standards for corporations operating overseas, and and that sort of thing. Um, but to get there, we need to you know instill this sense of of the change in the individual because that's where it's got to come from to begin with. It's from the individual. If, yeah, yeah.
2: Well, I want to go back to the beginning and, uh, and your three criteria for achieving global justice and, and therefore why it can be achieved. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, um, of the third condition is that all subjects are similar to the conditions. And you talked about how that is completely impossible. Some of us are struck by the human rights, etc. But I think the UN Declaration of Human Rights is making of of justice, They're not thinking of a, a random incidents or, or black or things like that, but more like what we do to each other. As mm-hmm. students, right? And so um, if, if we don't think about equal external conditions, it's not only possible that we were distributed around the world, uh, would, would justice be achievable if it, if it only brought on human interaction as opposed to just equality of conditions? That is, we can mm-hmm. exploit each other. We don't to be equal in and opportunity, but, you know, as long as we're all not each other, then
1: yeah, is Yes. Hypothetically, um, with your question, yes, that is possible. However, it's impossible to separate those two things, because human behavior is totally dependent upon how they perceive themselves, whether you're a needy to begin with, right? Because, I mean, I forget who said it, but... Um, justice doesn't matter if you don't have any food, if you have nothing to eat. right? Justice is tangential, it'll come second. You don't worry about you know, how you treat your neighbor if you need to feed your child. So, um, presuming we can separate that variable and say, you know, yes, we're all equal, we, we'll, we'll all be subject to the same external conditions. I think, yeah, it is possible to achieve perfect global justice, but I don't think we can necessarily separate that. There will always be that, that, you know, disparity right between people and if we can minimize that disparity and bring people closer to um, you know a standard of living that is that is you know comparable then we can focus on the other side of things right like the human rights and the education so yeah it's difficult. Can talked about education and we're going to talk about education
2: university willingness to stand up to the building. And yet, don't our educational systems is actually discriminating all of those things because there are no rest
3: of your For a class of people with a
1: thousand years of opinion, like for the people who are ready to kill people. Yeah. I think the problem with opinions that people are ready to kill for are, is confirmatory evidence and pseudoscience. So if you have an opinion that you so strongly believe in, and that nothing else can be possible, you're not following the rules of academia, which are, consider other opinions, and maybe you're not right, you know, maybe you're wrong. And that's where, like, the heterogeneity of ideas and thought come into place. So, I think that if, I think that if you teach a student only one thing, they're far more likely to want to kill for that one thing than if you teach them a variety of things and let them critically analyze these different kind of processes and things going on and then say, okay, make your best educated decision on what you think is right or, you know, alternatively teach a number of processes or theories and say, this is the theory that the academic world accepts because, you know, these other theories don't really work for these reasons, but they may be correct. Under certain circumstances, or that sort of thing. Does that answer your question? Yeah.
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs> Some don't have answers. Uh, so you
1: don't see um, those two kind of elements of knowledge to be mutually exclusive either. Um, they both fulfill different roles in society. So, I mean, the, the empirical knowledge and the absolute truth will allow um, countries or cultures or languages to communicate between each other, whereas the cultural and religious truths will allow communications within. And and you 're bringing up the, the issue that at some time, at some points these things don 't quite mesh um, and that 's the truth I mean a lot of these a lot of religious teachings, for example are quite antiquated, and there are certain elements that just don 't seem to be right anymore, and they conflict with the things that we're currently teaching in schools and um, the best answer that I have for that is that religions um, to succeed, will have to be adaptable to that, and they don't really have a choice. Some of the most inspirational and, and wise, intelligent religious leaders who I've met have been the ones who have taken many of their teachings with a grain of salt and interpreted them in metaphorical sense, or um, said that you know maybe when this was written, they didn't quite understand some of the processes going on, but the main point of our teachings is this and not that. And so, for that reason, I don't think that they have to necessarily, one has to cancel the other one out. Um, You can still say, you know, this is right, and this is also right, but this is right in this sense, and this is right in another sense, and we can move forward and still embrace both those things, as opposed to saying, get rid of religion, or get rid of science, right? Even though some people do say get rid of science, and a lot of people do say get rid of religion, I don't think it's necessary.
2: That's quite question kind
1: of ties into the world. do you think that global justice will eventually take care of itself, maybe to see what's happening in the Middle East is that a sign that global justice is taking its own track? That global justice will eventually come to be by itself and resolve itself. Um, Well, if we look at human evolution, um, human cultural evolution, we do seem to be on a trend towards betterment, um, with improved human rights, and and we, I mean, we still fight wars about silly things, but it seems to be less than in the past, and we seem to be better able to kind of rationalise being nice to each other and being just than you know when you read the history books. And I wasn't there in the history, so I don't know how accurate that is, but we seem to be on a gradual trend of betterment. And so, I think that there is a series of cultural evolutions that will occur and that will bring us closer towards global justice and bring us closer towards a community of peace, because we are now a global community. And if you consider biology, evolutionary theory, um, communities that get along Better than communities that have internal fighting, right? And so that will be selected for. So I mean, I think that we are on the trend towards that, but I don't think that means that we should just be complacent and let it take care of itself and you know let global justice just do its own thing and happen. And this still means that we need to be the agents of change, and we still need to encourage this because we have the ability to do so. Do you
2: think we really are- And perhaps even accelerating the rate of the gap between the wealthy and the poor. So, for example, when I was your age, the, the CEO of a large firm might make 25 but the force, sweeper, the people would make it in the firm. Whereas now the ratio is 400 or 500. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that ratio is not getting shorter, it's getting wider.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I absolutely agree with you, and I think that is an incredible injustice, and that that should not that should not be allowed to exist. That that gap between rich and poor, but that's something that has accelerated, at least drastically, for the last hundred years or so, and so you know, and probably for you know a few hundred years. But it's it's something that I think is short term. Um, and that we will eventually come to terms with the fact that wait a second, when you've got really rich and really poor, you've got more bad than good, and it's better to you know not have a bimodal distribution of income and um, prosperity. Um, so, uh, no, not necessarily. You can you can still you still have a distribution. You still have rich people and poor people and people in the middle, but. Um, I think what Mark is commenting on right now is just a complete erosion of the middle class as seen in the United States and like you've got ninety percent of the wealth distribution going to one percent of the, the But of the issue that has been increasing over in the last couple of centuries. The middle class could century is we existed till the last two centuries. That's true, yeah.
2: So um you know, I think they have a lot you know, they the, the
1: Mm -hmm. So I don't know how to address that per se, but um, I do acknowledge that the the income gap is is an injustice and that that needs to be addressed if we want to move forward and and that our current economic system or corporate uh, monopolization of the world isn't really the best way to address um, disparities in income. to um, Is I would think so, yes. Um, so some of the human rights I
2: list... Um.
1: Yeah, so it's a, the United Nations declares several human rights, and these include, um, I guess they say born equal, which is pretty vague, but you have the right to life, you have the right to live, you have the right to not be tortured, you have the right to not be a slave, you have the right to not be discriminated against on the basis of gender, on the basis of race, on the basis of whatever you are, right? So um, they have a number of human rights, I can't name any right now, that are somewhat controversial, um, that are kind of thought of as to be very western um, Um, originating and that it's difficult to impose those on certain cultures who don't really perceive themselves in that way. But there are fundamental human rights like the right to not be tortured that must be abided by.
4: There. Um, I'd like to address a few uh, terms that I'm going to come across at the beginning. Um, so if the judges would like to write them down just so they don't get a little confused halfway through. Uh, the first one is imam, which ends with an M. It's a, it's a religious leader usually, but it's also a leader in general of any group of people, is an imam. Um, the second one, these are in orders of occurrence in the in the, uh, the pe- presentation, so you can tag right along. The second one is Tafir. Which is both the square in which the demonstrations in Egypt and Iraq took place uh, and are continuing to take place, but it also is simply the Arabic term for liberation, um, and so it, it takes on both those senses in the uh, in the presentation. The next is iman, which ends with an n that's piety, character, greatness of self, um, but not you know inflating yourself it's it's like uh, it's people who are, who are genuinely good, um, strong people. Uh, the next is Kalam. Kalam is, is scientific Islamic theology. So it's a scientific approach to, to theology and philosophy. And the last one is Jihad, which I'm sure you guys have all got a fairly good hold on. Uh, it just means struggle, basically, but it all, can also mean you know, physical, emotional, spiritual, whatever it is. <coughs> Bismillah rahman rahim. Alhamdulillah. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you all. Not the peace of non-war, but the peace of a crystal glass, whole, resting at peace, full of potential, fragile. Injustice is not a natural disaster. This is good news because as such we can be the masters. But it's also quite tragic because, as such, it means that it's because of us and it's not some black magic. But I still believe that we can stem this tide because I believe that we, each one of us, can change inside. Global justice can be found quite close to the ground. It turns out your heart is the best place to start because what good is a system if no one can rise to the challenge? You see, we have science but still youth defiance because those ideas don't expend, extend to a broken soul you must mend. We have policies of hate, nations built to discriminate, whose nationalities are based on nothing deeper than race, because someone born here should experience no fear that anywhere else, while well, those people, if you must call them that, can figure it out themselves. See, it all boils down to something less than profound. So stop. Make a plan. But realize, the guy who should do this, or would do that, is a man. He's not a fact, or a system, or a number of thing. He's a brother, not an other. And when you realize this, I know that he'll love your plan, and you'll both grow together. But this love of each other is born of the removal of the other. And this modern boogeyman is the root of the nationalist plan, because when I am Canadian, all I'm saying is I'm not like them. After all, what makes me a national outside the law? I mean, inside, it's just a birth, some kind of draw. But in reality, Canadian is something you really have to try to be, even if you're born here. When I go around in jeans and a shirt and a smile, I can claim to be local without denial, but when I dress like this and try and be more developed, all of a sudden, where are you from? What's that shirt all about? See, being of a nation is not based on your own personal goals. It's not based on what you want to be, but on where you were born and that you don't look like me. Different. So can't you see this negativity? An identity based on relativity? They're not, li- they're not like me and I like me, so they must be different. Bad. Less. Stopped. Now let's look at dehumanization. The way it's done is to remove all dignity. It's achieved through the removal of sympathy. Take your clothes, your name, your identity, and then give, not take, nationality. We can see the reality. Nationality is an agent of dehumanization. See, when imams lie, it's nation they apply, to prey on the weak and get them to seek some twisted old rule, like an eye for an eye but much, much more cruel. It's father for son and bullet for stone. Mothers and daughters left all alone, their cries leave their mouths but without a sound, because their tears fell in Tahrir where humans aren't found. Now, we don't start with hate and disdain for mankind. It's far into life we build walls in our mind. So when does that woman stop being real? Is it when she's distant she loses appeal? It's proved by waves breaking on a keel. Distance doesn't matter so long as you're real. But when you call into question a nationalist cause, you'll wake, cry, and bleed and get no applause when you throw rocks at men armed with standard-issue British guns and you fight for your life and those of your sons, the biggest worry they have is not for your family, but rather for the spread of this disease they call calamity. Nationalism is an agent of human rights abuses. National boundaries don't actually exist. They're made up. They only exist in our minds. They don't keep people out. They keep us closed in. And since they exist in the mind, that's where problems begin. So I propose to you all to keep being you, but define yourselves positively, even if that's something new. Have a self that's made purely of what you are and can be, because global justice starts with your identity, and choosing who you are is what it is to be free. Constraining our children in negative identity should be a crime, but can we strip away this powerful tool simply by removing its teaching in school? No. The individual, it's well-known, can't stand against the grain of the nature of man. We need support and a helping hand. We need at least one person to be a Facebook fan. So turn back to a system where what I am comes from me and my community. Anyone is allowed to be just like me. And if they're not, that's okay. They've chosen to be. See, we can't work together thinking of what we're not. And ask Quebec if it's okay that we're a big melting pot. We need to build ourselves from within, and that's all and so we need to stop the nationalist call. Because so long as there are those who define themselves by what others are not allowed to be, there will be hate, ignorance, xenophobia, and our plans will not work. But what sort of community allows me to be me, and still be part of a unified we? When you look at the foundation of a place, histories tell of war, human disgrace, but they say, oh, what a time, the first, the pure, the best of us. A faith, on the other hand, Is at its best when in unison its followers had peace, justice in their hearts. And what great achievements from east or west were built in this peace? Which model is best? Communities in God that see nations as a crime can bring mankind into its prime. When I joined the Ummah, my new community, and I looked around, what did I see? People from Sudan, Malaysia, France, a hundred nationalities in one somber stance, then with our heads to the earth, it all washed away. There were no cracks in the earth for five moments each day. We can stand independent as Christian and Jew and Buddhist and Sikh, but a nation depends on not being others, and a future dependent on that is quite bleak. So a counterintuitive appeal goes out, asking you all to be more devout. It may be an unlikely proposition for you to accept, and for some reason here I find the most contempt for the. for declaring my faith and building myself for saying that iman is intellectual wealth but let's look again at what religion can give when it's a whole glass and not just a sieve listen to the worst of the worst of imams today in the bottom of the barrel of those led astray more often than not what they're claiming to do is in fact exactly the same as you They're they're searching for justice for saying they are because it's the biggest motivator by far they know that the youth feel a burn in their hearts. They want, to, they want to help out, but know not where to start. We must turn from a system that for performing for, for will go bust, and instead turn to a model whose goal, at least, is to be just. Now, I'll be the first to say, this path is a very precarious way. There's danger and darkness, there's possibly tears, but in the name of justice, we can overcome those fears. So far, scientific thought has brought us this. The scientific thought has also missed. See, right now, we're faced often with calamity. Floods and famines, drugs and war. But if we take that calam, then all we've got is itty, bitty problems, that we can solve ourselves. So it will be tough, there's quite a jihad. But if we stick through and overcome the bad, we'll see a world we never knew we had. Because the strength of our identity will align with our community and not interfere with any other entity, and we won't need to seek a common enemy except hate, ignorance, xenophobia. And then, then our plans will work. Right now, the earth is a broken glass. Dangerous, fragile, fractious. What we need is the piece of a whole glass, functional, soft, and at rest. And without the cracks and scars... That we call theirs and ours. Alhamdulillahi salam al hakum. Praise be to God, the Peace, the Just. Thank you.
2: Exclusion mechanism that uh, that defines more of what people are not than what they are. Uh, And so you have us uh, dissolve our race national boundaries, but to sort of construct more like religious identity. So why would that construct like religious identity, replacing national identity, not just view the same exclusion?
4: Right. Um, So yeah, it is the case that, uh, that a lot of people who build a religious identity are building a religious identity based on the exact same motivators as nationality. That is to say, I am Muslim because I'm not Christian, uh, which is the same as nationality. But I think that it's intrinsic in the system of nationality that that's how nationalism is created. That's all that nationalism is. There's nothing more to it. Um, if, you, if, if you erased Canada... You know insofar as it is not America, it would just simply be part of America, and there would be no national identity there. However, if you erase that thought, you know if you said if you said to someone uh, your your belief in your religion is not intrinsic on someone else 's disbelief, and which is the case if a religious if a religious group wants their religion to dominate the world, what they're seeking is homogeneity of thought they if their goal was to not be an other, and yet they're trying to convert everyone to their own belief, then, then they're, they're destabilizing their own identities by, by assimilating the other, and always you know taking the other on. And so at the root of a lot of religious practice, you do have the ability to supersede that, to say, you know what, you're Algerian, but you're still Muslim. You're French, but you're still Muslim. Right? And so nationalism can't do that. You can't say you're Algerian, but you're still Canadian. You know, you still need both passports. You still have to, to you know, you can't behave entirely in an Algerian sense in Canada. You have to obey Canadian law, and uh, and other problems like that. And of course, the the problems that arise in Quebec and all sorts of other national issues can be evidence to that. Uh, no, I'm actually, like I was saying, turned back to the system, where there are many different laws, however, they're not governed by national identity, but rather religious identity. are
2: not very concerned that
4: Right, no. Right. Well, I think that a lot of these issues are addressed with, um, like I was saying, with the kalem, with scientific approach to theology. A lot of these issues are addressed. Because you realize, um, with a scientific approach, that there are those problems. You can't just dogmatically continue to, to oppress a people. You have to criticize, you have to think about... Uh, the institution that you're upholding. So I think that a lot of those problems in, in any of the religions that I've studied, there has been mechanisms within those religions to address those problems. And so there, there are mechanisms in nationalism, yes, and they took us a long time to develop. There are those mechanisms in religion as well, and they will take us a long time to develop. Some of them are, have already been developed in such, certain religions, but you know, they will take a long time to develop. But I think that if we switch tracks now, um, we can can recover the losses, we can develop those things in a religious sphere, and then not have to base our identity off of something something negative. So then, uh, I'm not saying that as they exist now, all religious institutions are perfect models to follow. Far from the truth. Like I said, I think it's very precarious if we're going to jump on board this ship, but I think that ultimately it's a good thing to do because of that. Well, I think that it's it's uh, a very good question. Um, I think that it's a very human uh, it's a very human attribute to do that. Um, it's very normal. It's it's something that really needs to be overcome. Like I said in my in my presentation, if you raise a child and you you bring them up as pristinely as possible, they're still going to have this tendency, and that's why I think we can't just not teach nationalism in school. We have to have a supporting force that is. That is suppressing the oppressive part of human nature. So I think that it's completely human nature. It's completely human and normal to want to kill somebody simply because you don't like them. But we need a force that can overcome that, a force that can dominate that. And so, uh, so I think that I, I think that it's just the way we are, unfortunately. Uh.
2: In the world. And then how would um, using religion rather than, than
4: nationality reflects those systems? Um I think that uh first I'll answer your first question. What are some of the injustices? I think um what is right. What is injustice? Injustice is, is a very difficult term to define, I'm sure you've realized listening to these. Uh, but it, it, it is, it's, it's interaction between humans, between two people, uh, that is for the benefit of one, intrinsically, and that is dominated by that person. So if I'm interacting with you in a way that I know will benefit me more than you, and then I intentionally encourage that, that's injustice. And so I think that nationalism does that naturally. That's the construct of nationalism. Nationalism is collecting a group of people so you can do that better. Um, religion, though, as you can see with certain ascetic movements, really has motivators in it that are completely against, justice, against that injustice. You don't understand why when I'm, I'm talking to you and I think, you know, it would really be detrimental to me and beneficial for you, for me to do this, and then I do that. A nationalist wouldn't do that. But a religious person might, through an act of charity, through an act of asceticism, and so there are mo- there are things in religious practice that allow for that that don't exist in nationalism. So I think again, through the exploitation and the development of those, uh, we can we can come into a much more just system. And of course, personal development is very very big in that. Uh,
2: thank you. It's wonderful still the of the of the I appreciate that. However, my challenge to you is, long time ago the other guy who said everything is economic. The guy who the
4: Uh, I think in in your question there's a problem and a solution. Because through the study of religion, and like I was saying before, the the understanding of asceticism, you can see that there are motivators in religious practice that are anti-economic. And so it it can't be that those motivators are all developed for an economic purpose. Um, So there is something to religion that is beyond economy. And so, so I think that there's the key. There's something in there that we can use. And the other key is this. Look at Margaret Thatcher's home. Look at Stephen Harper's home. Now look at the Pope's home. Now we can really see who can really control economy. Um, There's a certain amount of economic control available to a religious community that is virtually unprecedented. And I think if, like I said, we can, we can use this. If we can build our identities off religious practice, and we can build a scientific understanding of religion, then we can develop these economies once again that used to exist that can, that can create massive good. Look, for example, in Canada, it's very difficult to find a product that doesn't contain milk or meat that is not kosher. It's very, very difficult. And that's an economic thing. Because it's, it, all you have to do is have a rabbi look at it, And then you can brand it kosher. So there is an economic push to religious or to religious orientations, Um, and and you look at uh, at other charity acts and things like that. These a lot of these things have a lot of economic push to them and have a lot of economic weight. And so I think we can we can both uh, we can both benefit from it and and sort of manipulate it according to to
0: how we need it.
2: Um, you said that nations focus more on themselves than the religious, uh, religion is very way that you religion gets shared. I've seen daily articles. We see that our country gives more out to other countries than we even seem to be using for ourselves half the time and fixing homelessness in our own country mm-hmm. while we're still donating to others. So how is it possible to say that dissolving nations and then only relying on the um, so national identity and religious identity, how does that stop separation? Because there's are so many people that say, Well, I'm Muslim, you're Christian, you're Buddhist, you're in certain religion here, in certain nationality here, in certain race here. We are different, but how does
4: So I think you've got three points there. You've got charity of nations. You've got homogeneity of religious institution, and then you've got science and religion. Right? Is that a fair assessment? Okay. First, um, first, I'd just like to address charity. Uh, Canada gives that money out to people like Mubarak. I'm, I mean, the, the charitable nature of Canada's charities is definitely questionable at best. Um, Whereas, as, at a religious level, it's me giving directly to a homeless person, very frequently. Uh, in fact, there were a lot of laws passed in, in um, early modern Europe that, that st- stopped the tithe, because you can't tax it, because people are just giving to everybody. You can't, you can't see where the money's going. So, that's, I mean, that becomes a problem. When people begin giving money to, you know, in, in a very effective way, the government has an issue with that. Um, so then, the second thing is, is religious homogeny. I think, uh, I'm, I'm not in any way sor- sort of promoting religious homogeny at all. I think that that the the value of humanity is in diversity of religions and religious thought and things like that. And I think that it's important to be able to make a choice. People are going to make a choice anyway. If you don't give them the opportunity, then they're going to take it from you. So you have to open up the the, the, um, the, the different religions... To, to an open communication, um, and that includes information sharing between them, right? So you, you can't have your children brought up to only know your religion because that will, that will, again, restrict their choice. So I think that right now at this point, can I just say, oh no, I'm Filipino, really? No. But can I just say, oh, I'm Buddhist? I mean, there are steps you have to take. There are certainly things you have to do. There are certainly things you have to know. But it's much more open. Than, than religious, or than uh, national boundaries. Um, and the last point, uh, sorry, sorry, what was the last point? Again? Right. Mm-hmm. I think, like I said before with that it's existed in every religion. Every religion has had a period of intense critical analysis of itself, and this has mostly coincided with the golden age of that religion. So, you look at when Christianity was flourishing and spreading, it was also very diverse. Uh, You look at when Islam was at its apex and creating massive advancements in science, it was not only the science of the physical, but of the metaphysical that they were advancing in. So, I think that bringing, the whole point is to bring this scientific knowledge, and say, listen, if you don't have a scientific backing, or understanding of your religion, then you're in trouble, then you're missing something. And so, that's that's where I think the, the, the kalam comes in.
2: I agree with you to reaction. I think we might want to be able to get to these last two questions. So we um, just keep talking about Um, I
4: just are looking at um achieving global justice through religion. And I'm just wondering why um atheists are they allowed to achieve global justice? Like the religion is Uh I think that I mean it's the same as non-national. What about, what about global citizens? Do they fit into our world? Yes, they do. I mean, they work themselves in. Uh, they, they behave just the time in the world. And same with atheists. It's not that I think that atheists are amoral or that atheists exist will exist outside the system. Um, I think that atheists will find their own way to behave. Again, if we, if we take advantage of economic factors, atheists, for example, excellent producers of vinegar. Muslims can't handle alcohol at all. There's nothing they can do to touch alcohol. However, they can drink vinegar. Vinegar is made through the production of alcohol, so a Muslim can't make it, but a Muslim can buy it. There's a great job for an atheist. You know, it's things like that. There are economic, there are economic and cultural areas where where atheists will flourish just like anyone else. Um, in Um, I think it, I think that's a false dichotomy for one. Religion can be very democratic. In fact, most a lot of the religions that I'm thinking off the top of my head have a very democratic system. I mean, as far as cardinals elect the pope. There's a, there's, a, there's a string of democracy in religion. So if what you're talking about is universal suffrage at the very basic level, I mean, there's so many different constructions of it anyway. Um, but I think that religious government, religious overseeing of of institutions is better equipped. Uh, the reason is, again, if they follow the scientific, if they follow the kalam of that religion, then you have people can say, you know what, leader of whatever religion it is, you're actually doing this wrong. Here we've got the ancient scriptures telling us that this isn't the way you're supposed to be doing this. You're not supposed to be taking advantage of people. You're not supposed to build such a big house. And so then they can, they can take the correct action. And in fact, I think in a lot of cases it's much more effective because they have a lot more authority to do that. Whereas if you have Mubarak who's put in charge, how can the United States prop up a dictator like that and say it's democratic? Because it's all an illusion. If Mubarak was supposed to be in charge of some sort of church, they'd never let him stand in the first place, put aside 40 years later. Because no church is going to impose a leader onto another church. It doesn't make any sense. And so, um, if you follow, again, the scientific analysis of these, these church teachings and so I think that this that, that is, is sort of the full point, this very important point is the scientific um, following of these religions
0: okay <laughs> <laughs> so what we are going to do now is we are going to give judge, the judges up to five minutes to uh, uh, finish their scorecards. And in the meantime, I'm going to just remind you of a couple upcoming sessions, uh, including the Thursday session of the regular Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs session. This actually looks like a very interesting session. It's going to be delivered by a, uh, a very well-known uh, professor of sociology at the university here. The session is entitled The Tea Party Movement. How did it affect the 2010 U.S. elections? Um, Trevor Harrison, Dr. Trevor Harrison, uh, from the Sociology Department, will be presenting at 12 p.m., at the Country Kitchen Catering, and that's in the lower level of the keg on the south side. The cost is $10, but that includes lunch. Um, if you do have time at noon on Thursday, definitely consider checking that out. It should be very interesting. And I also want to pump up the second uh, session, or second semi-final session of this 2011 Student Speaker Challenge, which will be occurring next Tuesday, March 8th at 4 p.m. in this room, featuring Channing Stenhouse, who is actually in attendance today, and Rory Turant. And again, the winner of that session will collect $300 and move on to the semi-final. And we will learn who will be moving on in just momentarily. So I'll be right back with you in just a moment. Okay.